we, we come now to uh, the last three books in the Old Testament. We're actually only doing two tonight, saving the third for next time. Um, but they fit together because they're all in the same block of history. And uh, they're Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. Now tonight we're going to be doing Haggai and, uh, and Zechariah and uh, we'll do Malachi next time. But they, they all come in the same block of history. And it's the history that we saw in the books of Ezra, Esther and Nehemiah. Now, obviously, I could ask any one of you to recap, and of course you could, but people listening to the tapes might not be able to. So therefore, let me just recap that, that history. And uh, fundamentally, it's the return to the land after Israel has been in the 70-year Babylonian captivity. You'll remember that Israel eventually got into the land and, and then eventually the northern kingdom, Israel, fell and the Assyrian captivity happened and the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, were gone, lost. Okay, And then that just left Judah in the south. Uh, Judah continued for another hundred years and then the Babylonians invaded and the Babylonian captivity happened. And the Babylonian captivity lasted for 70 years. So once Israel was taken out of the land and went to Babylonia, and then a 70-year period ensued where they were in captivity. And uh, that was the, Daniel went there and Daniel read from Ezekiel that it was going to last 70 years, etc., etc. Now, whilst Israel was in that captivity, the Babylonian Empire fell to the Medo-Persian Empire. So this is Daniel's beasts now. So Israel in the Babylonian captivity, and then one day, and there wasn't a shot fired, the Babylonian Empire fell to the Medo-Persian Empire. And the Medo-Persian at that time was under the rulership of King Cyrus. Now, what happened was, the Medo-Persian Empire um, was sympathetic to Israel. And what happened was, King Cyrus actually sent a load of exiles back to resettle the land and to rebuild the temple and to rebuild Jerusalem. And this work was carried out under the leadership of two main people. There was Zerubbabel, who was the governor, and he was actually a relative of King David. Now, he wasn't actually king of Israel at that time. He was like the governor under King Cyrus, King Cyrus being over the whole Medo-Persian Empire and Zerubbabel being the governor over Israel itself. But nevertheless, Zerubbabel was, um, you know, sort of of the tribe of Judah and he was actually in the Messianic line and he was a direct descendant of King David. So had at that time Israel had kings, Zerubbabel would have been the king, all right? So he was like the political governor, all right? And working with him was the high priest called Joshua. Now, don't get him mixed up with the Joshua who led Israel into the Promised Land. That was hundreds of years earlier, all right? So this work, all right, the captivity has ended. Medo-Persia under Cyrus has said to some of the exiles, go back into Israel, rebuild the land, rebuild the temple, etc., etc., rebuild the city of Jerusalem, that is. And Zerubbabel is appointed governor, and Joshua was the high priest. And under their leadership, this work 
was happening. Now, what happened was that after a while, because there was a lot of discouragement, there was a lot of um, opposition to what they were doing, and uh, we saw this in the book of Ezra, um, that eventually the work ground to a halt, all right, uh, for about 15 years. So they went back into the land, they made a good start, but then after a you know, year or so, a lot of discouragement and the work ground to a halt, and for 15 years, nothing happened, you know, sort of like just daily life went on. And it was at that point that two prophets were raised up, one called Haggai and one called Zechariah, and they're the two prophets that we're going to be looking at tonight. And uh, under their prophesying and their encouragement for everyone to get on with the work, within four years of their ministry starting, the temple was actually completed. And then 70 years later, Nehemiah, and he was helped by Ezra, the priest. Remember, we saw the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. 70 years later, Nehemiah rebuilds the walls and completes the actual rebuilding of Jerusalem itself. And that is when Malachi, the last prophet and the last book in the Bible, comes on the scene. So between Haggai and Zechariah, they're prophesying together. And then you've got kind of like, you know, 100 years or so later, Malachi is going full strength. But uh, we're going to do Haggai and Zechariah tonight. They work together, same time frame. And uh, we'll, we'll do Haggai first. So introduction, that's the history, the background. Haggai, underlined in red, boom, boom. All right. Now, the book of Haggai fundamentally is a record of four words or prophecies from the Lord that Haggai gave over a four-month period. So when you come to the book of Haggai, we're looking at a four-month period and prophecies which were four in number. The date is 520 BC. Right, now, chapter one and prophecy one. And um, the first prophecy is to Zerubbabel and Joshua. Remember, Zerubbabel, the governor, political leadership, although a believer, and Joshua, the high priest, religious leadership, also a believer. And basically, this prophecy is urging everyone to get back to rebuilding the temple because the temple is being neglected. Remember, what's happened is they made a start on rebuilding the temple, and there's been a 15-year gap where fundamentally the work came to a halt. Now, in that time, although the temple hasn't got any further, everyone's been building their own houses and building up their own businesses and getting back to normal life. And they've been neglecting the temple. But they've been trying in their minds to make out that this was the Lord's will. One of those situations where they knew it was right to rebuild the temple. They'd started to do that. There's been a lapse in it, all right? And uh, everyone's getting on with building their own houses, blah, blah, blah. And they're aware that the temple, that the work isn't going on. But they're, they're rationalising it. They're saying, look, you know, sort of like, really, it's God's will. It's okay. It doesn't matter that we're neglecting the temple. And the prophecy here is the Lord through Haggai saying, it does matter, and it isn't my will at all. And basically... What it boiled down to is that they were too busy with their own houses and their own lives to, to kind of worry about the Lord's house. And um, in verse 4, and, or 
but let's actually look at verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. See, they, they're trying to make out the fact that they've lapsed on the work. They're saying it's God's will, it doesn't matter. And Haggai is saying it does matter. And then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? And what the Lord's saying, you're all looking after yourselves. But what about the temple? What about where I live? And of course, the picture is that they've lapsed in their discipleship. They're following the Lord. I mean, they're not, you know, they're not totally backslidden by any means at all. But it's lukewarm. It's kind of, you know, the sort of like the desires of the world and normal life. And not that any of those things are wrong in themselves. But they've taken priority and the people no longer have the Lord as their number one. And, um, and what the Lord goes on to tell them is that at that particular time, Israel was in an economic mess. You know, the balance of payments was really bad and, and the economy of the country was not in um, a very good way at all. And the Lord says that that continuing economic jumble and mess was a direct result of the fact that they weren't getting on with working on the temple. And uh, it's, it's very graphic actually, And because uh, in verse 5 the prophecy goes on, he says, Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. So their harvests weren't coming in too good enough to get by, but that was all. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. Warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Now that is rampant inflation, fundamentally. And the blessing of the Lord is that however little you've got, it's enough. But for these people, they're out of fellowship, and it didn't matter how much they had, it wasn't enough. And the Lord is saying, this is my judgment on you. Therefore, get your priorities right again. Put me first. Get to work on the temple. And, um, and the result of this um, Haggai saying this was a very pleasant result. The leaders, Zerubbabel and Joshua, and the people respond in a positive way. So to a man, they all say, yep, this is absolutely right. And they get back to the work, straight back to the work. And as a result of that, uh, there's just one more word from the Lord, but it's kind of like the second half of prophecy number one. I don't categorise this as the second prophecy because it's simply the Lord saying, um, I am with you. And so what the Lord has said, he's challenged them. He said, look, here's what you've got to put right. They say, yes, sorry, Lord. Well, and they get straight down to work again on the temple. And then the Lord says, I'm with you. I, everything's going to be okay. So that's chapter one. Now then, chapter two and prophecy number two. And this is to Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the people. And, um, and basically, what the Lord tells them is that um, although the temple that they were building at this point was, was nowhere near as elaborate or beautiful or, or stunning as the temple that Solomon built, um, and, and this was making them wonder if, the, you know, if it was a bit insignificant. So they were getting a bit downhearted. Because this temple wasn't anything like as grand as the Temple of Solomon. That had long since been destroyed. They're rebuilding it. But the one they're rebuilding is not on as grand a scale because they haven't got the resources or anything. So it's a much smaller, sort of like tin pot affair. All right. And, and the people are kind of thinking, oh, th this is insignificant. They're getting an inferiority complex about it. 
they're thinking, oh, this, you know, what we're doing here is not as grand as the days of Solomon, and it's not as grand as, as the good old days. And they're thinking, well, is it worth it? And they're getting all demoralized. And what the law says to them, look, okay, it may not be as grand as what I did then, but it's what I'm doing now, and in my eyes, it is glorious. Because, of course, glory is doing the Lord's will. I mean, if one group of believers are kind of being, you know, sort of like blessed of the Lord in such a way that, you know, I mean, they can't stop the miracles from happening. They can't stop people getting converted. They, they, they can't stop the power of the Lord moving through them, all right? Well, that's fantastic. That's God's will. That's glorious. But if you've got another group of believers in a situation where the Lord isn't doing anything like that, that is as glorious because the glory is the Lord's will. He is the glory. So the point is that when God's pouring out his spirit and working miracles all over the place, that's glorious. When he isn't, that's glorious, because he knows best. And so he's encouraging them. He's saying, look, don't, don't, don't think, oh, this is a tin pot little temple that we're working on. The Lord says, no, be encouraged. It's as glorious to me as the temple that Solomon built. And in the prophecy, the Lord goes on to say that a time was coming when, in fact, he was going to shake the nations. Now, immediately we move on now to the second coming, don't we? And he tells them that at this time when he's going to shake the nations, that a, a temple um, is going to be built compared to which even Solomon's temple will pale into insignificance. And so what the Lord's saying, look, there are degrees of glory, but they're all glory. So he says, look, Solomon's temple was great. All right, what you're doing is smaller. But I don't want you to feel that it's insignificant or anything at all, because it isn't. And I'll tell you, a day's coming when I'm going to shake the nations, Great Tribulation and Second Coming, and then a temple is going to be built that is even going to make Solomon's temple look tinpot, the temple in the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Christ. That's the temple that Ezekiel saw, you know, in the last few chapters of his book. He describes it. And so what the Lord is saying is that there are degrees of glory but I'm doing different things at different times, so the fact that what you're doing seems small now, and you're comparing yourself to Solomon's temple, well, one day I'm going to build a temple that Solomon's temple will look small against. See? So the Lord's saying, it's what I'm doing. That, that's what counts. So, you know, sort of like the Lord's encouraging them. Don't look at the externals. You're doing my will. That and that alone is what counts. Then you get prophecy number three. Now, this is directed to the priests, all right? So this is a, a kind of like a, a bit of a priestly matter because it's a kind of a, it's, it's a picture. It's something that the Lord wants to communicate and, and he's using uh, kind of like, the, you know, ideas of sacrifice and clean and unclean um, in order to make his point. Now, this is, um, this is the basic point that the Lord makes. He says, if you've got an object that is itself holy, i.e. it's ceremonially clean. It's a sanctified, a special holy object, all right? So here you've got a holy object, all right? Now, if you've got another object over here that isn't holy or isn't, you know, sort of like especially ceremonially clean, if the object that is holy touches the object that isn't holy, the unholy object isn't made holy by the holy object touching it. That's what the Lord says. So the point is, the holy object can't pass on its holiness to that which is unholy. But then he goes on to say, but if you've got an object that is positively unclean or unholy, and he quotes the example of a cadaver, here's a body of someone who's died, a dead body, ceremonially unclean. He says, if you've got that, if you've got an object 
or someone who is ceremonially clean, if they touch the unclean thing, then the uncleanness rubs off onto them and makes them unclean. All right. So what he's saying is that you can have things that are holy, and, and okay, you've got things over here that are neutral, but the holy things can't make the neutral things holy. But if you've got something that's unclean, like a cadaver, a dead body, then if that touches something that's holy, that which is holy becomes unclean. And the point that the law was saying to them was this. You see, because they'd been neglecting this work on the temple, because they got their priorities wrong. I mean, they were still following the Lord. I mean, it was all to a degree. They were still worshipping him. They weren't into idolatry, particularly at this point, or anything like that. But what the Lord is saying, look, because the most important thing, which was putting me first and working on the temple, because that isn't in place, because you've neglected that, therefore, your whole lives, every aspect of your life as a nation, has been blighted by that. So he's saying, here's a thing that you've been doing wrong. You've neglected building the temple, all right? So he's saying, therefore, but there are loads of other things you've been doing as a nation, and they've all been right and good. But he said, the right and good things haven't made the wrong thing good. The wrong thing has made all the right things, you know, it's blighted them. Because the thing that they were doing wrong was they'd fundamentally put God second. And so what the Lord was saying is that every aspect of their lives as a nation had been blighted because they were refusing to build the temple as the Lord had told them so. So therefore, it's been like they've got um, neglecting the temple, there's a dead body, but they've got the rest of their life following the Lord, clean, holy, all right? But rather than that, making the neglect of the temple holy, the fact they've neglected the temple has put everything else out of kilter. And the uncleanness has spread all the way down the line because neglecting the temple really was them putting themselves before the Lord. Because as we saw, they were all happy to build their own houses. They didn't have any money left over for the Lord's house, did they? And so the Lord's saying, that has blighted you as a nation in every way. Hence your economy is up the spout, your harvests are failing, blah, blah, blah. But now... Because this prophecy is a positive one. This is after they've put it right. They've started work on the temple. And what the Lord is saying is that now, because you've changed, and because you're not neglecting the temple anymore, now is going to be a complete reversal. And rather than having your whole lives blighted, now your whole life as a nation is going to be blessed. And everything that you've lost, all the economic blessings that have slipped through your fingers, all that is going to be restored to them. So that, that's, that's prophecy number three. Now prophecy number four. We're nearly there, you see? Very, very quick, Haggai. We're nearly there. Prophecy number four is to Zerubbabel. Remember, the governor, all right? Would have been king, because he, he was in, in the Messianic line. He was a relative of King David, but he was just the governor, because at this point Israel was still under the, um, the Medo-Persian Empire. So this is a message to um, Zerubbabel. And, um, and what the basis of this prophecy is, is that precisely because he is a descendant of King David, and therefore in the Messianic line, because remember, they knew from all the Old Testament prophecies that Messiah was going to be line of the tribe of Judah, that he was going to be in the line of King David. And so therefore, because Zerubbabel is a descendant of King David and is going to be himself a descendant of Messiah, all right, um, therefore he kind of prophetically and symbolically typifies the rule of the Messiah 
that is going to happen when you get this day of the shaking of the nations that the Lord spoke about in prophecy number two. And so, in that sense, that what you've got here is, is that the Lord is taking the situations it was then, and then he's, having dealt with the situation there and then, he's then reminding them of the fact that a day is going to come when it won't be Zerubbabel ruling over the people, it's going to be the one who would be his descendant, that Messiah himself will come and rule over his people. And it's going to be at the time of this eventual shaking of the nations. Of course, at the second coming and the establishing um, of the thousand-year reign of Jesus. So there, the Lord is saying, right, here's the way it is now. Here's prophecy relating to where you are now. And here's prophecy relating to the end times. When all my promises to you that haven't been fulfilled yet are going to culminate and be fulfilled at that time. And so, again, that's it. That, that's the end of Haggai, very quick, isn't it? But again, you see there that you've got this thing that current events becoming a kind of a prophetic diving board that the prophet dives off of in order to, to describe and give teaching about the end times. And, and, and so, therefore, you know, here's a phrase to impress your friends with. The contemporary local scene for them becomes kind of the basis for a prophetic consideration of the universal eschatological picture. No, perhaps, perhaps don't use that <laughs> phrase, but can, can you see what I mean? <laughs> so the point is the Lord has spoken to them then, they're returning to the land, they're rebuilding the land, and it's all very small beginnings. But the Lord has said to them, don't feel it's insignificant. Don't, don't feel, oh, what's the point? This is all so small. Because he's saying the time is going to come and he uses Zerubbabel as a kind of a symbol of Messiah. He says the time is going to come when it will all come full course and Messiah himself will rule the world from Israel. And that's what I mean, and we've seen this all the way through, um, you know, sort of like all the prophets, that what they're doing, they're prophesying to the situation there and then as it is, but always with an eye to the ultimate final restoration of Israel when Messiah is himself ruling the earth from Jerusalem. Okay, right, so there's Haggai, a very encouraging ministry, bucking the people up, come on, get back to work, we've got a temple to rebuild, blah, blah, blah. So that's, that's, that's good. So now we come on to Zechariah. Zechariah works with Haggai. Um, he, he, he was a bit younger than Haggai. He actually, Haggai started, and then Zechariah came on the scene after Haggai started. But continued for much longer. So, so Haggai kind of started and Zechariah carried on for, for quite a bit longer. And um, his book is longer for a start, you know, and Haggai's recorded ministry only lasted four months, whereas Zechariah's recorded ministry went on for a lot longer. Doesn't mean Haggai was only a prophet for four months, but that, that, that's all the record we have. Right, now with Zechariah, uh, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel before him, he was also a priest. So he wasn't just a prophet, he was a priest as well. Um, and the immediate burden of, of, of his heart was exactly the same as Haggai. They were both about the same thing. It was to encourage Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people in rebuilding the temple. So his book is, is completely complementary to Haggai. The two of them go together and you'll see certain themes, although the book of Zechariah is longer and it's much more involved. It's a, a, a much more complex book 
um, as you will, will duly see. And um, it also has a lot in common with Daniel, again, as you'll see as we go through it. Uh, a lot in it concerning the end times. And, um, you know, sort of you'll see as well that a lot of the imagery is like Revelation. So a lot of the imagery is shared by Daniel and Zechariah and Revelation. And uh, so these three books go very much together in understanding some of the details of the end time and the second coming, etc., etc. And uh, so of all the prophets, he's most like Daniel in the Old Testament. And um, it starts off with eight visions. And then after the eight visions end, then it goes off onto other stuff about the end times. So we're going to at least commence in the early chapters by looking at eight visions that Zechariah has. So um, we go into chapter one, and, um, and it, he, he starts off by calling on the people not to be like their forefathers, like the Jews before them, but to heed what the Lord was saying and to repent. Remember, what was Israel's history? It was captivity, because they didn't listen to the Lord and they didn't repent. And now they're back in the land. And Zechariah starts off by saying, look, don't be like your forefathers, okay? Um, hear what the Lord is saying and repent, put it into practice. Or your history of captivity is going to start all over again, which of course it did. <laughs> um, so, vision one. And uh, what he, he sees a man riding on a red horse amongst myrtle trees in a ravine. And behind him were red, brown, and white horses. Now, I don't want to go into all the details about the colours because we haven't got time, but basically the interpretation of this vision was that the man riding the red horse was the Lord, and the horses were angels. And these angels were sent throughout the earth. So kind of these horses, they went out throughout the whole earth. And as they went out, they found the world at rest and in peace. And that was the condition that the world was in there. Under the Medo-Persian, there was very much world peace because it, it kind of encompassed most of the then known world. And so under the Medo-Persian Empire, there was you know, a real peace of worldwide, real time of worldwide peace and calm. And so the, these angels, these horses, they, they span out and they, they, they go throughout the earth and they find it at rest and in peace. But they discover that Judah and Jerusalem are still suffering the effect of its 70-year captivity. Because, of course, they're new back in the land, and they're small, they, you know, so therefore they're still... Although the captivity is over, they're suffering the effects of it. They've still got a temple to rebuild, they've still got a city to rebuild. And that's what these angels, these horses, discover. And, um, and what the Lord says to this is that he's angry that the Gentile nations oppressed Israel. Here are the Gentile nations at peace, and here's little Israel struggling with all the effects of having been in captivity. And the Lord says that he's angry with the Gentile nations because they've oppressed Israel. And, um, and he says that what he was going to do is he would reach out to Israel in mercy. And in reaching out to Israel in mercy at this time, he would enable them to have the temple rebuilt, so here you see immediately the time with Haggai. And because the temple was going to be rebuilt, he would grant them prosperity. 
So that's vision one. Now, vision number eight returns to that imagery of the horses, so we'll get there shortly. And bearing in mind that this vision of the Lord riding a horse and horses and different colours, it's all in Revelation um, chapter six as well. So we'll, you know, sort of like there's a, a, a tie up there. Right, then we come on to vision two. Very Daniel, this. And uh, he sees four horns. And these horns were four nations that scattered Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem. Now, this forces us to ask ourselves, could this be Daniel's four world powers? Well, of course it is. It's Babylon, Medo-Persia. Now we get prophetic, all right, Greece and Rome in the future. So here, Zechariah sees four horns. And these four horns are world powers that scattered Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem. And what Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, and Rome all had in common was that they did that, okay. And uh, obviously Rome, as we've seen in Daniel, is one day going to be revived, isn't it? The Roman Empire is yet going to come back. So we see here, he sees four horns, and these horns are nations that scattered Israel. Then he sees four craftsmen so he's seen four horns, which were four nations that scattered Israel. Now he sees four craftsmen. Now, these craftsmen, there were four of them, and each craftsman destroys one of the above horns. Right? So the horns are four nations that scattered Israel. The craftsmen are nations that destroy the horns that scattered Israel. Now then, we've got to um, get this into our heads, because some of the nations are not just horns, but they're craftsmen as well. Now let's, let's, let's go through this. All right, you've got the Babylonian Empire. Now the Babylonian Empire is a horn because it scattered Israel. But is it a craftsman? No because it didn't itself destroy any nations that scattered Israel. It was the first of these big world powers. So the Babylonian Empire was a horn. Then along comes Medo-Persia. Now Medo-Persia was a craftsman because it destroyed Babylon, but it was also a horn because it scattered Israel. Then along comes Greece, and Greece was a craftsman because it destroyed Medo-Persia, but it itself scattered Israel. Remember particularly Antiochus. Epiphanes, we saw him in Daniel. So Greece comes along and it is a horn and a craftsman. And then along comes Rome. Now Rome, all right, is a horn, is a craftsman because it destroyed Greece, but it was a horn because it scattered Israel. So we've had four nations, all four of them were horns, but only three of them were craftsmen. Well, what's the, the fourth craftsman? The fourth nation is going to be a craftsman that destroys a nation that scattered Israel, but doesn't itself scatter Israel. What is it? It's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God that comes in and destroys the Roman Empire. Oh, when does that happen? Well, at the second coming, doesn't it? Because the Antichrist heads up the revived Roman Empire. And do you remember the little stone that Daniel saw, that, you know, when he had the statue, the little stone that hit the legs of the statue and it all crumbled, and then this little stone became a mountain that filled the whole earth. That was the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom of God is the fourth craftsman. And, um, you know, so, so, so there's a prophecy there to conjure with. Because <laughs> I know that's, that's, that's a bit difficult to take on board. But fundamentally, he's seeing the four world powers 
that destroyed Israel. And yet seeing as well that all of them, that they gave way to each other. So Babylonian gave way to Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia gave way to Greece. Greece gave way to Rome. Now we know from Daniel that although Rome, Rome was destroyed after the first coming, because after AD 70, the Roman Empire went down and after a couple of hundred years, it was virtually gone. But we know from Daniel that the Roman Empire is going to be around not just at the first coming, but the second coming as well. And at the second coming, the kingdom of God destroys the Roman Empire. So there's Zechariah getting in on this act about all the world empires. And of course, the whole point is saying to them, look, at the moment, it's small beginnings, you know, sort of like you've, you've been oppressed, you'll be oppressed again. <coughs> but it's all going to end up with the kingdom of God, Messiah, ruling from Jerusalem. It's all going to end up with Messiah ruling all the nations. And all the nations that have oppressed you are one day going to bow down to you. So that's, that's the visions of the, the horns and the craftsmen. Now chapter 2. And in chapter 2 we move on to vision 3. And he sees a man with a measuring rod going off to measure Jerusalem. So this, this guy is a surveyor. Um, you, you see these council guys in yellow coats walking along the road with their little stick and little wheel on the end, don't you? He's one of them. I don't know whether he's that being forest, but he's a surveyor and he's going out and he's measuring Jerusalem. And then follows a picture, a vision of Jerusalem in the millennium after the judgment of the Gentile nations. So what Zechariah sees now, he sees this council workman, all right, going around measuring Jerusalem with Epping Forest District Council written on his jacket. And then he has a vision of Jerusalem during the reign of Messiah, during the kingdom of God, the millennial reign of Jesus, after the judgment of the Gentile nations. Now, of course, you remember, we saw in the prophet Joel, didn't we? that a day was going to come when Messiah will gather all the nations, all the Gentile nations of the world together in the Valley of Decision, also known as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. You remember that from Joel, don't you? Yes, God, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt at any rate. All right. And here, in this picture, he sees the final craftsman defeating the final horn. Now he's actually seeing the kingdom of God established on the earth and Jerusalem as it's going to be during the thousand year reign of Christ. And of course what he's seeing is that the kingdom that immediately preceded that, the one world empire under the Antichrist, is gone. It's gone. And so he's seeing the, the final establishment of the Jewish kingdom with Messiah ruling on the earth and Jerusalem being as all the prophets have always said that one day it's going to be. And at this time, he sees that all the Jewish exiles have returned from across the globe. Because at this point, they've returned from the Babylonian captivity, although by now it was Medo-Persia. But the Jews are still spread out all over the world. There's only a few of them back in Jerusalem. And um, Israel's history to this day is that they're spread out around all the nations. But now he sees all the Jewish exiles home that there are no Jews spread out across the earth. All the Jews are in the land. They're in Israel. And uh, this, is, this is pictured by the four winds of heaven, north, south, east and west. And these four winds of heaven bring the Jewish exiles from all over the world into their land. And of course, every Jew just lives to go to Jerusalem, don't they? In the same way that Muslims live to go to Mecca. The Jews, they, they live to get into the land 
and during the kingdom of God, when Messiah reigns on the earth, that will be established. Every living Jew during the thousand year reign of Jesus will be in the land and there'll be no more exiles. It will be the exact opposite to what they're experiencing now. At this time, they're struggling to build what they see as this tin pot little temple and they're getting all discouraged and the Lord is saying, it's not tin pot, it might be small, but it's my will, therefore it's as glorious as if it was big. Be encouraged because one day I'm going to do something that's going to make everything look tin pot by comparison. And he says that many nations shall serve the Lord in that day, but Jerusalem is going to be, as it were, top dog, and all the Gentile nations will serve Israel. And there'll be a complete reversal of Israel's history, which has been by and large to be the underdog because it's out of fellowship with the Lord. The time is coming when it's going to be top dog because the Jews are totally in fellowship with the Lord. Right, then we move on to chapter 3, and uh, we come to, to vision number 4. And this is the, uh, the very well-known one, where Zechariah sees Joshua the high priest in heaven, kind of like a law court you know, situation, and uh, Satan is there accusing him. And um, this is one Lee got all con uh, confused, thinking it was Joshua who led them into the promised land. But it's not, this is the Joshua the high priest, who was, uh, you know, sort of like working with Zerubbabel at this time, leading the people. And here Zechariah sees this Joshua the high priest. And uh, he's standing before the Lord, and Satan is accusing him. Because that's what Satan is. He's the accuser of the brethren, as the Bible says. And uh, so here's Satan kind of ready to accuse Joshua. What's he going to accuse him of? Sin. All right. And then what happens is, and it's fascinating the way this works, the first thing that happens is that Satan is thrown out of the court. So you've got a situation where here's a sinner who's a believer in the dock before God. All right? Satan, the prosecuting counsel, is drawing breath to open his case. Before the prosecuting counsel can say a word, the judge throws him out. There's no prosecution. Why not? Well, because Jesus took our sin on the cross. So. And then what happens is that Joshua is, is wearing these filthy clothes, these putrid, infested clothes. That's his sin. And they're removed, and clean priestly clothes are put on him, along with a clean turban as well. They, they, they wore headgear at this time. And he's then told by God, having received clean clothes, Joshua is told by God that he, how blessed he's going to be through ongoing obedience and staying in fellowship with the Lord. And that he and his associates, now who were Joshua the high priest's associates? Zerubbabel, the governor, and of course Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets. Right? That he and his associates are symbolic of things to come. So, so, so here you get, you know, Zechariah sees Joshua in heaven, getting the clean turban and the clean clothes and Satan thrown out, all right? And he's told that all this is, that they are all symbolic of something that is yet to occur, things that as yet lie in the future. And the Lord goes on to say that he is going to send his servant the branch. Now, this, this phrase, the branch, Isaiah chapter 4 and Jeremiah 23, an established Jewish term for Messiah. So the Lord's saying that one day he's going to send his servant, the Messiah, and sin will be removed from the land in a single day. Now remember, Satan accusing the brethren has been thrown out of court. His filthy rags have been replaced by completely clean clothes. 
Why? Well, because he's symbolic of something that's going to happen in the future, and what's going to happen in the future is Messiah is going to come and he's going to remove from the land sin in a single day. We saw that actually in the prophecy of the 70 weeks in Daniel, because Jesus died on the cross and he dealt with sin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and that included the sin of Israel as well. And the result of this will be restoration, peace and prosperity. That was Israel's ultimate future as a result of what Messiah was eventually going to do. Now here, it's important to realise that in context, Joshua the high priest is not symbolising individual salvation. He's not primarily symbolising what we would call justification by faith. He's symbolising the nation of Israel. As the high priest, he is representing Israel as a nation. This is looking at Israel as God's people, the fact that Jesus' death on the sin results also in the fact that eventually all God's promises to Israel are going to be fulfilled. And in the end times, they'll have the glorious future they've always been promised by him. So here, Joshua as the high priest is standing as a representative for Israel as the nation. This is talking about Israel's justification as a nation by faith. But of course, it is completely valid as well to secondarily say that this is a, an incredible picture of what happens as a result of the fact that we're born again and that God has called us into the covenant of grace. The fact that we who are guilty, who are sinful, and any accusation under the sun can be thrown at us, have been declared innocent because of the blood of Jesus, and therefore Satan has no reason to condemn us, and there is no condemnation for them which are in Christ Jesus. So a national picture, but also absolutely valid to take it as a picture of individual salvation as well. Right, now, now that's because God is a God of order, and uh, brings us to chapter 4, having done chapter 3. And also, because God is a God of order, brings us to vision number five, having just done number four. I hope you're following this. Chapter four, vision five. Now then, this is what he sees, and we're going to be back to Revelation here. He sees a gold candlestick. Just think, before you met me, you just had to read it. <laughs> now, now you get it explained to you, my goodness. He sees a gold candlestick takes me hours to work all this out, incidentally. I don't understand it first time either. He sees a gold candlestick, but then that's what I get paid for, isn't it? I must stop digressing. He sees a gold candlestick. It's bad news when you keep interrupting yourself, <laughs> isn't it? Anyway, he sees a gold candlestick, i.e. a lampstand, all right? Lampstand, candlestick, all right? With the old candles on. Because they didn't have electricity, and so they weren't bulbs. Right, okay, anyway. He, he sees this, this gold lampstand with this thing, all right? And it's got seven candles on it. And there are two olive trees standing by it. All right. Now, let's, let's just clear up the symbolism. All right. Israel, a lampstand, a candlestick. Israel, what did Jesus say to the Jews? You are the light of the world. So here we've got a picture of Israel as the light of the world. And also, because we as Christians are children of God, we are the light of the world as well. But there's the picture, Israel as a nation, as the light of the world, all right? So this is what he sees. He sees the, the classic Jewish lampstand with seven candles on, and standing by this candlestick are two olive trees. Now, the Lord speaks to Zerubbabel, and this is what he says. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. So Zechariah, he's seeing this vision, and then in the vision, the Lord speaks to Zerubbabel as the leader of the people, saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. 
Now, what you've got here, and then the law goes on to talk about mountains will be removed. And this, of course, is where Jesus went when he talked about, if you've got faith, you can say to this mountain, go into the sea. Jesus is not there sort of like saying this is something that you're literally to do. Jesus was drawing on the symbolism that you get here in Zechariah chapter 5. And, and, and the Lord talks about that before you, O Zerubbabel, mountains will become plains. And what the Lord is saying is that the temple is going to be completed by God's power. Well, those are rubbable and the people are doing the building work. This temple is going to be built. The work will be accomplished not by might, not their cleverness, not their strength, not the tools, not the hammers and the chisels, but like everything in the Christian life, it's going to be the work of the Lord. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. And this is for us, not by commitment, not by prayer, not by Bible study, but by my spirit. That's what the Lord says. That is what the Christian life is. All right. And the Lord's saying that because of that, all the obstacles in the way of what Zerubbabel was doing, and Zerubbabel, and he, Zerubbabel was doing God's work, all the hurdles, all the obstacles in the way, because it's the Lord doing it, and because he's in God's will, it's like all these mountains are just going to vanish. All the hurdles are going to be overcome. And it's interesting as well, because at this point, the Lord, through Zechariah, throws in this bit, a quite you know, famous verse in the Bible, and he says, Who will despise the day of small things? And again, he addresses the fact that they're thinking, oh, what we're doing, it's so small, it's so... It's so insignificant compared with the glories of the past, compared with Solomon's temple. This is a tin pot little thing that we're, and they're getting all discouraged. And again, they'll say, don't despise the day of small things. Because, of course, be faithful in little, and the Lord will put you in charge of much, you see. So we must never, ever despise the small things. And at this point in the prophecy, the Lord chucks that in. He's saying, oh, by the way, look, what you're doing isn't significant. It's my will isn't insignificant, it's my will. And therefore, the fact that what you're doing isn't as outwardly and visually glorious as what happened in the days of Solomon, nevertheless, he's saying, this is my will here and now. That's all that matters. So don't despise the day of small things, because it's only small in your eyes. Remember, through Haggai, the Lord said, this temple, you're, you're saying, oh, it's so insignificant compared to Solomon's, but the Lord said through Haggai, look, it's as glorious to me as Solomon's was. See, So the, the Lord just chucks that in there. And then Zechariah asks him about the two olive trees. He says, well, who are they? He's got the bit about the lampstand, all right, because that, that pictured Israel as the light of the world. So this lampstand with seven candles, that was God's nation. That was God's people. They were the light of the world. And he says, I've got that, because he, you know, sort of like read Leviticus and all that. But he says, who are these two olive trees? What's, what's all this about? And what the Lord tells him is he said that the two olive trees were the Lord's two servants. The Lord's two servants. Now, who were they? Well, I put it to you, and it seems pretty obvious to me, hope it will be to you, that it's referring there to Zerubbabel and Joshua, the governor and the high priest. And the reason it's pretty obvious it's them is that the Lord has already said that he's going to send his, the branch, he's going to send Messiah. All right? Now then, what's the thing here about Zerubbabel and Joshua? Zerubbabel, although technically not the king, he was the governor, having been placed over Israel by Cyrus. But if Israel had been totally independent at this point, he would have been king. And he was in the line of David. So if, if Israel could have 
you know, sort of like constitutionally have had a king at the moment, he would have been the king, all right? So you've got Zerubbabel, the king, and you've got Joshua, the high priest. Now, what is one of the distinctive things about Messiah? He's going to combine these two offices in Israel because he is going to be the king priest. Jesus is the king of the Jews and the king of the world, but he's also our great high priest. And so therefore, the witnesses here, the two witnesses, symbolise uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua as the king and priest, symbolising the eventual coming um, of, of Messiah being the king and high priest. Now, this imagery carries over into Revelation, and there it's changed slightly. And in Revelation, at the beginning of the book, because You'll, you'll see this in more detail when we get there, but the early chapter, the first couple of chapters of the book refer to the church age because it's letters to seven churches. And these churches are referred to as um, lampstands. And um, that, that, that's fine because at the moment, in the church age, Israel has been cut out of the vine. So the light of the world now isn't Israel, is it? It's the church. See? So in the church age, the church of Jesus Christ is the lampstand. All right? And of course, at the rapture, chapter 3 and 4, then, chapter 5 onwards, you get the Great Tribulation when Israel is grafted back in. And of course, it's later on in the book that you get two olive branches again, the two witnesses. And it seems they're not named there any more than they're named here. But of course, in Revelation, it's quite clear that the witnesses are Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets sent to Israel to preach um, in the second half of the Great Tribulation to Israel. Now, in Jerusalem, who would be the two best people to preach the Gospel? Well, Moses and Elijah. And so, boom, there they are. And so the imagery here is carried over into the um, second coming and, and the whole thing um, about the, the end times. And again, remember that He's been told that, that, that Joshua and his associates, that all these things, although they're, they're, they're to do with the situation they were in then and to encourage them in what God's will was for them, but nevertheless they were all symbolic of things to come. See, And, and, and that's the, the key. So an application for them, and yet looking ahead to the end times and the eventual establishing of the kingdom on earth. Right, so that's, that's vision five, the, the, the candlestick and the, the candles and the olive trees, etc., etc. Right, chapter five and vision six. This, this, is, this is fairly easy. He sees a flying scroll, and it's 30 foot long and it's 15 foot wide. Um, and he's told that this scroll is the curse of God against sin and law-breaking. Right? So he sees a scroll, and the idea being that this is God's word in regards to sin and law-breaking. Now, in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1, what's the predicament that they find in heaven? Well, the predicament they find in heaven is that they have a scroll that only the Lamb, Messiah, was found worthy to open. And when this scroll was opened by Jesus, when it was opened, what was it? Well, it was seals, trumpets and bowls all to do with the judgments of God on the earth during the Great Tribulation. So here, Zechariah has a vision of this scroll, 
which in the end times is symbolic of the judgments that are poured out on the earth and that the Lamb opened at the beginning of the Great Tribulation in heaven, having got back to heaven with the saints, the rapture of the church. So that's, that's easy. Then we move on to Vision 7, same chapter, but Vision 7, and uh, he sees a woman in a basket. <laughs> I leave you to work out the details of that symbolism. And he sees a woman in a basket which is flown to Babylon. And it's flown to Babylon by two angels of female appearance. Uh, this is the one instance in the Bible where angels are described as, you know, as being feminine. Which doesn't mean that angels are either feminine or male, but I mean, this is the exception that proves the rule. When angels appear, they do so as males, except here. But then we don't even know these are real angels, because we've already seen angels as horses in vision number one, and angels aren't really horses either. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's all the symbolism of the... the th shall, shall I repeat that? Um, but he sees a woman in a basket, and she's flown to Babylon by two angels of female appearance. Now, this basket, because of course he's interested what this means, so it's sort of like, you know, imagine you've woken up, you know, you, 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 you're having your prayer time, and I see a basket. What does this mean, Lord? Well, because Zechariah's more spiritual than us, the Lord tells him. <laughs> doesn't just leave him there scratching his head. And I say, Lord, what does this mean? And ten years later, I'm saying, Lord, I'm still waiting. What does this mean? But of course, for the prophets in the Old Testament, they, they, they have pretty good hotlines. And, um, and he's told that this, this basket is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. So it kind of represents the sin of Israel. Um, you know, so it's the iniquity of the people. It's, it's sin. And the woman represents wickedness. So, so we have a, a totally female representation of wickedness here. Um, this has no relevance on feminism or anything like that, incidentally. Because what do you have in Revelation chapter 17? Well, of course, I'll get in there before you'll flub me knowing what's in Revelation chapter 17. You have the, the vision, the picture, the symbolism of um, the woman who was called the great harlot Babylon. And of course, throughout the Bible, Babylon kind of represents the world religious system. A false system of religion that is based on man's works. Now then, what, what is the thrust here in Zechariah? Well, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. It's the exact opposite. And here he sees this representation that we find again in Revelation um, of, of, of man's religious works, this world system, this religion, um, which is a great harlot because it, it's completely deceptive. It's not the real thing at all. Man's works are to religion what a prostitute is to marriage. They are, it's not that they're not the same thing, they are diametrically the opposite. And, and so here he sees that any idea of, of man reaching out to God religiously, any idea of a spirituality uh, that is based on, on, on what man is within himself is actually wickedness and sin and evil. Because, of course, the condition that we're all in is that we are utterly lost and helpless. But, of course, in rebellion, mankind sees himself quite the opposite, quite capable. 
And uh, so here he sees this false world religious system that he hit up against in Revelation chapter 17. And of course in the Great Tribulation it's headed up by the Antichrist in conjunction with the false prophet who works loads and loads of miracles. So it will be the zenith of false religiosity and false religion in every way. So that's, that's vision 7. Then we come on to chapter 6 and uh, the last vision, so vision number 8. And we go back now to the imagery of the first vision, back in chapter 1. And it's, um, we're back with horses. And what he, he sees four chariots emerge from between two mountains of bronze. So he's got two mountains of bronze, and in the middle, obviously, there's a kind of a pass. And out from between these two mountains come four chariots. Now these chariots, four chariots, are driven by four horses. And uh, one is drawn by red horses, one is drawn by black horses, one is drawn by white horses, and one is drawn by dappled horses. Now that is the exact imagery of Revelation chapter 6, even down to the colour of the horses. In Vision chapter 1, the significant thing with ho was ho the horses. Here, it's not only that it's horses, but they're exactly the same colours of what are known in literature as the four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation. And uh, here the colours are absolutely spot on as well. And the, these horses, they, they go throughout the earth and they represent judgment. And of course in Revelation they go out you know, throughout the earth. And of course, in the Great Tribulation, you've got all these disasters, one after the other, you know, natural disasters. And of course, it's God pouring out the vials of his wrath on the earth. It's God's judgment on mankind. And here we see them, they spread out among the whole earth and they represent judgment. And just as a bit of an aside here, just, just because um, I found it interesting, that if these two mountains represent Zion, all right, then... Zion represents, it, it has in it two, two parts, the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives, all right? Now, if it's that, the Kidron Valley is in the middle. So here, if it's the case that these two mountains of bronze represent Zion, i.e. the holy area, then you've got um, the Temple Mount on one side, the Mount of Olives on the other, and you've got a valley in the middle, and these horses come out of that valley. And that valley between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount is the Kidron Valley. Now, you'll remember that when we did Joel and we looked at the Valley of Jehoshaphat or the Valley of Decision, he calls it both. And you have there when, when Jesus enters into judgment with the Gentile nations, all right, um, in I, the sheep and the goats, um, kind of, we said that you can't from the Bible totally tied down exactly where it is. But I, I plumbed for the Kidron Valley. And if it is that, this symbolism works very, very well. All right. So, so you know, that's a kind of a possibility. You know, could it be that here we have the, you know, the actual location of the Valley of Jehoshaphat stroke, the Valley of Decision. And, uh, but nevertheless, that what we've got, these horses, they, they, they kind of, they go out into the earth, we know from chapter 1 that they're angels and they go out into the earth and they represent judgment and God's judgment on the earth. And of course you've got to fit that in with they saw the woman in the basket and, and these visions, they all have an accrued effect, alright. And uh, right, so, so, so that's, that's kind of um, vision number 8. Now actually do a bit of reading now, alright. And if you, you should be in chapter 6, 
Right. And we're going to read verse 9 to 15. Just so you can... Um, because now we, we move on to a few more things about the, the second coming and the end times now. And, um, right, verse, let's start reading from verse 9. And this is basically the, um, you know, the end of, um, of chapter 6. The word of the Lord came to me. So he's had all his visions now. All right, so the visions are all gone. And um, now the Lord speaks to him. Take silver and gold from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah. Don't, you know, don't worry about the name, they're just exiles right, who are coming back, who have arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak. This is Joshua the high priest who we've already seen. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place. Ha, ha, ho, 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 word, play, pun, joke. See, branch, branch out, right? And build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. And then it just goes on to say a bit more about the exiles. But what I want you to get is this. This is the Lord speaking to Zechariah. And the symbolism here is, uh, firstly, you've got that Joshua, the high priest, is symbolically crowned king. Not, not actually, but symbolically. This is what the Lord's saying in his prophecy. That Joshua, the high priest, is crowned king. Now, of course, you know, sort of like... The king, you know, in the Old Testament, a priest couldn't be a king and vice versa. But of course, when Messiah comes, it will be the combination of the two. Uh, he'll be the king of the Jews, the king of the world, and he'll be the great high priest. And here, to kind of symbolise this, um, it's not, I, I suppose one could have done it the other way round. Maybe Zerubbabel could have been made a priest. But the point is here, the priest is crowned king. And you get this kind of thing about that the the, the two will, will be one. There will be harmony between the two. That in Messiah, kingly rule and priestly rule will be combined. Now, look at this. Tell him, here is the man whose name is the branch. Now, there's a wordplay here on Messiah, and he will branch out and, you know, wordplay, pun. But the main point, look, here is the man whose name is the branch. What we're given here is that the Messiah was going to be called Yeshua in the Hebrew. Joshua, if you translate, you know, transliterate that into English. Jesus, if you transliterate into Greek. We're actually given the first name of Messiah. See? So again, that's quite good. You know, I mean, sort of like, you know, Jesus was the only person who could arrange what his first name was. See? And uh, so there you actually get the thing about the Messiah. Because Joshua, the high priest, Joshua is Jesus, it's the same name. So the high priest is made a king, quite blatantly, he's a picture of Messiah, and then his name is going to be the same name as the branch. Joshua, Jesus. Brilliant. All, all these prophecies. When Jesus came along saying he was the Messiah, I mean, it's this, you know, you've been seeing this long list of, of conditions that Messiah had to fulfil. And only a tiny percentage of them were possible for him to arrange as he went along. 
I mean, how do you arrange your own genealogy? Well, you can only do that if you're alive before you're born. And Jesus was. You see, and why I keep saying again and again and again, you'll only understand the Gospels and the life of Jesus when you realise that the Jews rejected him knowing full well who he was. Their rejection wasn't that of, oh, oh, what a silly mistake. Ho, ho, oh, if only, if only we'd read the Old Testament a bit more carefully, we'd have realised. They rejected him knowing who he was. Here, the Old Testament actually tells us what his name was going to be. Right, okay, that's some um, chapter 6 done with. Um, now we move on to chapter 7. And he kind of, um, we go back to kind of like challenging the people now, building the people up, exhorting them to follow the law faithfully. And um, what he's saying is that throughout the, the 70 years, um, when they were in captivity in Babylon, the, the Jews fasted at, at, at certain months. And they had these fasts mourning the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And what happens is that uh, some men from Bethel come now and they inquire of the priests whether that now that they're back in the land and the temple's being restored, that should they continue this fasting? So should we carry on with it or shouldn't we? And, uh, and what Zechariah tells them is that the fasting, that here they are all concerned, should we keep this up or not? What does the Lord want? But what he says is, look, this, this fasting that you're so concerned about, it's long since become ritualism anyway. It's completely insincere. And, and he goes on to tell them that what mattered to the Lord wasn't their fasting, whether or not they were fasting. It was true justice. It was mercy. It was compassion. It was not oppressing the widow and the fatherless. It was not oppressing the alien. I'm not, not, not talking about Ridley Scott alien. We're, we're talking about, you know, sort of like foreigners, right? Not, not, don't want you to, you know, it's a difference. I mean, are, are there aliens? Well, this, this is another, no, there aren't. But basically, I don't want to get into that. But not, not oppressing foreigners like Scotsmen. I mean, the Lord really tests us here in this fellowship. We, we've got a Scot here. And he says, <laughs> and then he goes on to say, and it's all to do with not oppressing the poor. So all I can say to that is leave me alone. No, and, and, you know, and they're not to think evil of each other. So you've really got shades of, of Amos there. And, and Zechariah reminds them that this is the kind of sin that got you into captivity in the first place. So he says, look, don't worry about all this fasting. This, that, that's not the real point. The real point is justice and mercy. That's the real point, not, not ritualism and externals. Um, then we move on to chapter 8. I'm going to have to start going a little bit faster than I, I, I really want to, but nevertheless, I'm going to have to do it. Anyway, so now we come to chapter 8, and the present situation is... Um, in chapter 8, you, again, you get... <laughs> if, if I get the giggles now, I'm dead. I'm dead. In chapter 8, um, again... The present situation that they're in, the actual historic situation they were in then, is used to symbolise the eventual thousand-year reign of Jesus and the time when Messiah is, is himself ruling on, on the earth. And, um, and the Lord tells them that the, that the blessings, so that, that the cursings that they've known are, are all going to be turned into blessings in, instead. And the Lord refers back to these fasts you know, the men from Bethel, they'd come asking about, do we keep the fast up, blah, blah, blah. Well, now, actually, from the Lord, they get the answer. And uh, they were actually fasting um, at that point during the 4th, 5th, 7th and 10th months. That was their, you know, sort of calendar. They weren't fasting the whole month, incidentally, but that was when they had the fast. And what the Lord tells them is that those fasts are instead going to become joyful festivals of happiness. 
So the Lord was saying, that fasting is going to be over because it was the fasting of mourning. And he says, eventually that's going to go because now you're back in the land. And of course, eventually it's going to go completely because the day is going to come when Israel is fully in the land, never ever to be forced to leave it again. And uh, if, perhaps if you just, just read in um, chapter 7 and, um, sorry, chapter 8 and just read verse 20. And he says, um, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come, and the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty to entreat him. So there's the picture of all the nations of the earth coming into Jerusalem. So fasting and mourning will be behind them because they'll be fully established in the land. Um, in chapter 9, um, the first eight verses are uh, a kind of um, a prophecy of judgment. And what happens is it's talking about God's judgment on certain nations. And it talks about a, a campaign of war in which various Gentile nations fell to an invader, but in which Jerusalem is spared. So you get a campaign and, you know, this war and all, all these Gentile nations become victims in this war, but uh, Jerusalem is spared. And um, there we actually have a prophecy um, of the coming uh, Greek Empire, um, Alexander the Great, some 200 years later. Because 200 years after Zechariah wrote that, um, Alexander the Great took over the then known world. And uh, he, these nations fell to him in exactly the order that Zechariah puts here. But you'll remember um, that... Um, Alexander was sympathetic to the Jews and he didn't attack Jerusalem. I mean, you know, sort of like uh, Antiochus Epiphanes gave them a, a bad time sometime later, but, but, but initially Greece was, um, you know, sort of quite good to the Jews initially. And uh, so, I mean, really you're back there to the horns and the craftsmen because all these nations fall um, having, um, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, having oppressed Israel at various times. Just look at verse 9. Rejoice greatly, this is chapter 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. There's first coming. Chapter 10, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken. He'll proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And then if you keep reading down through there, it talks about the Lord appearing, and there you have the second coming. So the rest of that is a description of the first coming, and then followed by a description of the second coming. Uh, then chapter 10, do this very quickly, um, you have a picture of Israelites being like sheep, and uh, not having any shepherds, because of their leaders being into idolatry and occultism. So Israel's history was that their shepherds were really bad, they had a really bad history of bad leadership. And of course, reminded what Jesus said, that when he looked on the crowds, he had compassion on them because he saw they were like sheep without shepherd. That, that very much the picture here used in, um, in Zechariah. And, uh, but nevertheless, the prophecy goes on to say that eventual restoration will come, i.e. that Israel are one day going to get the shepherd that they've always needed. And Jesus came along saying, I'm the good shepherd. Um, in chapter 10, just read uh, ver verse 4. Um, from Judah will come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler. Together they'll be like mighty men trampling the muddy streets in battle, because the Lord is with them, they will fight and overthrow the horsemen. And there, there you've got, again, messianic verses talking about when Messiah comes. And chapter 10 
ends with assurance that eventually Israel's um, enemies will be dealt with by God. Now, chapter 11, uh, the first three verses, you get a prophecy about devastation that is yet to come on the land. So the land is going to be devastated again. Um, happened twice. It happened in, uh, in AD 70 when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. That was as a result of Israel rejecting Jesus when he came. And then, of course, it's going to happen again in the Great Tribulation. And then you get a prophecy um, that involves two shepherds and two staffs. And these two staffs are called favour and union. And what happens is the Lord takes these staffs and he breaks them. All right. So there's going to be two shepherds and there's going to be these two staffs, favour and union. And the Lord breaks them. Now, basically, what this boils down to, uh, when you interpret it in the light of the New Testament, um, is that it depicts Israel's rejection of Jesus as, as their true shepherd and that they eventually turn to someone else, and it could possibly be the Antichrist, and accept a false shepherd. All right. And what happens is that the staff of favour, as a result of this, God takes the staff of favour and he breaks it. And he breaks it in that because Israel rejected Jesus, their true shepherd, God will reject them. And so this, the, the, this staff of grace, of favour, the Lord's accepting of them, is broken. And so Israel are then out of fellowship. And um, in verses 8 to 10, you get a description uh, that a siege was going to happen to um, the holy city and that they'd even eat each other, that cannibalism would break out. And it's, it's a, a, a prophecy that was fulfilled in AD 70 when Titus marched in and laid siege to Jerusalem, all right? And they actually ended up eating each other. Cannibalism broke out. Uh, verses 12 to 13, um, you get um, the thing about, um, you know, sort of like 30 pieces of silver and the potter's field. And uh, that is actually used in the New Testament of Judas. And so there you get a picture of, of the betrayal of Judas. And you can cross-reference that with Jeremiah as well. Um, I'm, I'm going fast now because time's running out. Um, and, and then in verse 14, all right, look at this. Then I broke my second staff called Union, breaking the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So we've seen that the true shepherd comes, Israel rejects it. As a result of that, staff one, favour is broken, all right? Israel out of fellowship. Then you get a description of Jerusalem falling to Rome, which was the judgment of God on them as a result of, um, you know, sort of having rejected Jesus. Now the staff of union is broken. Now what's interesting, in AD 70, when the, uh, when the Romans marched into Jerusalem, Titus gave the troops specific instructions they weren't to destroy the temple. However, the temple was eventually destroyed, but it was destroyed as a result of catching fire, as a result of a battle that broke out in it between warring factions of Jews. So here you see that union is broken and the Jews turn against each other, and that is how the temple came to be destroyed. It wasn't destroyed by the Romans, it was destroyed by internally fighting Jews. Um, and then in, 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 in verse 15 to 17, uh, you get these verses about this false shepherd um, who's going to come. And uh, I'll leave you to read that. Cause, um, but there you've basically got the first and second comings of Jesus. Now, in chapter 12, which is, um, we're nearly the end now, but I've really got to go quickly. Um, a day is going to come, it's chapter 12, when Israel will have all the nations of the world gathered around her to destroy her. But she will become an immovable rock and a cup 
that will send them all reeling as the Lord destroys them. So there you've got Armageddon at the second coming um, and the great, uh, at the end of the great tribulation. And uh, so this day is coming when all the nations of the world will gather to destroy um, Israel and Jerusalem, but they won't be able to, all right? The Lord destroys them instead, so second coming. Verse 10, it says that Israel, that they will look on him whom they have pierced and mourn for him. There you get Israel realising that Jesus was their Messiah and because they realise that, they mourn for him who, who they've pierced. And they pray, Lord, come. And Jesus said, you'll not see me again to say, blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Israel says, Lord, come. And that's when you get the second coming. All right. So there is Israel's conversion at the end of the great tribulation. And uh, then in verse 13, restored Israel will then turn against all the false prophets that deceived her. And, um, but these false prophets will strike back and uh, they'll, they'll, they'll try and, and, and deceive Israel even more. Because, of course, in the thousand-year reign of Christ, people are still being born and they're still sinners, and so false prophets will emerge. And um, in verses 4 to 6, you've got this thing about, um, you know, like, um, you know, because false prophets will be put to death, They'll, they'll pretend not to be false, you know, they'll pretend that they're not prophets at all. And uh, you get this thing about, you know, it says about these marks I received at the house of my friends. And what prophets would all, you know, often do, the false ones, is they got into ecstasies and they used to cut themselves. We saw this with the prophets of Baal, didn't we? You know, when Elijah challenged them on Mount Carmel. And so the point is that often the false prophets would have scars from their ecstatic rantings and ravings. And so the point is, because they don't want to be found out, people say, well, how did you get those scars? Does that mean you're a false prophet? And they'd be put to death. They'll say, oh, no, no, I got that in the house of a friend. I fell over or something like that. All right. And um, then, in, in, in uh, then in verse 7, um, it talks about that the time's going to come when the good shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. So that's back to the first coming of Jesus. And Jesus quoted that himself, you know, that, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So there you've got um, a messianic one. And uh, contrast that with the, the worthless, the false shepherd in chapter 11. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. Um, and then verse 89, uh, you get survival rates in the Great Tribulation. So I'll, I'll leave you to, um, you know, to work that one out. Uh, you know, sort of like um, a third, two thirds of the people perish, but a third survive. Then in chapter 14, uh, really, getting there now I think we're going to do it all right um, chapter 14 and the first three verses um, you get the second coming um, at the end of the great uh, tribulation and you get Jerusalem ready to fall but the Lord returns and intervenes so you have a prophecy that Israel on the point of it falling the Lord is going to come and intervene so that's the second coming and then I'll, I'll read verse 4 to 5. On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half, half moving south. So here's a, an actual change. Two mountains will appear in a valley that wasn't there before. Kidron Valley, Valley of Jehoshaphat, well, could well be. But, um, and... When Jesus comes at this point, because he stands on you know, that mountain and it splits into, he brings his holy ones with him. Well, that's, that's the raptured church. That's us, glorified, the saints. And um, so here, there you have Jesus coming with his bride. He lands on the holy mountain. It splits in two. And then at verses 6 to 11, 
Um, I'll actually leave you to read them. It just talks about various topographical changes in the world during the thousand year reign of Christ. So for instance, uh, Jerusalem is raised up. It, it becomes a massive mountain that wasn't there before. And so you get various um, topographical you know, changes. And then a description of the eventual judgment on all the nations who have fought against Israel. So there you're back to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Valley of Decision um, as described in Joel and how all their wealth goes to Israel. So the nations are judged and all their wealth is given to Israel. Uh, then it ends with um, a description of the millennial reign of Jesus and all the, the nations going to worship him in Jerusalem every year and that if they don't, the Lord will judge them with a drought. And, uh, and then it ends with a brief description of the eventual holiness that Israel is going to show forth as a nation in contrast to the unholiness and rebellion that um, she, she showed throughout her previous history. Well, boom, right. Hagar and Zechariah.